Chapter 9 of Niqua, or The Problem of the Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Niqua, or The Problem of the Ages, by Jack Adams. Chapter 9 A Happy Scene. The proposed improvement of the airship, so that it could withstand the storms of the polar regions, and McNair's report of the progress that Battelle had made in that direction, inspired me with the determination to prosecute my studies with more energy than ever. I saw at a glance that if we should be able to open up a channel of communication with the outer world, the knowledge that could be acquired here would be of incalculable value to the people on the outside of the sphere and especially to my own native America, on whose virgin soil the new and improved thought was the most likely to germinate and grow to perfection. Before this trip to the outer world was made, I felt that it was my imperative duty to glean the wisdom of the ages from these vast libraries, and from the oral lessons of these ripe scholars. My one all-absorbing thought was to trace the progressive evolution of these people, and discover the fundamental principles and practical business methods that had enabled them to reach their present ideal civilization. Hence I determined to apply myself to study, with an earnestness of application that I had never before attempted. When I needed rest or desired to be alone, my favorite resort was the large observatory or reclining room on the top of the building. This room is octagonal in form, and is detached from the roof on which it rests, and is placed upon small wheels which run around on a circular track whenever the occupants turn on the electric power. In order to enjoy a most beautiful panorama, all I had to do was to seat myself at one of the windows, with or without my glass, and set the room to revolving slowly. I never tired of the scenes thus presented to my view from this elevated position. This room is furnished in the most superb style. Its elaborate upholstery is of the finest and softest materials of the most exquisite designs. It is large and airy. The walls are adorned with many magnificent paintings and ornamented with festoons of trailing vines and flowers, while the windows are garlanded with green and fragrant foliage. Around the circumference of this luxurious retreat are small, well-furnished alcoves at each window, which can be cut off from observation by sliding doors which are upholstered with some soft material that excludes every sound that might disturb the occupant. One day, about a week after the interview with Patel in regard to the improvement of the airships, McNair, Iola, Captain Gonneau, and myself had descended to the observatory for our usual after-dinner rest. I was in a meditative mood, and not caring to take part in the conversation, I had retired to one of the little alcoves, closed the doors, set the room in motion, and brought my window around to a point overlooking the great boulevard, with the pleasure grounds, shrubbery, flower gardens, and giant forest trees just beyond. From my lofty perch I looked down upon the scene before me. Bright, happy faces and kind, cheerful voices greeted eye and ear through the open window. 
I felt entranced by the wonderful scenes around me. I could not help but compare this great communal home, where all was abundance, elegant leisure, fascinating social enjoyment, health and happiness, with the crowded, filthy, and ill-ventilated tenement houses of New York, London, and other large cities of the outer world, which are preeminently the abodes of destitution, misery, and woe. How often has my heart ached when I have found families of ten and twelve persons, huddled into one or two diminutive rooms, poorly lighted, ill-ventilated, and disgustingly filthy. In the living hells of the outer world I had witnessed every manner of deformity, degradation, and filth, children in rags just from the arms of their mothers, creeping like cowardly wharf-rats about the slums and alleyways, picking up pieces of mouldy bread, or fishing in slop-barrels and sewers for bits of meat, were scenes of human misery that often made my heart bleed. Then, add to this picture of the conditions into which the children are born, the abject misery of their decrepit grandsires and grandmothers. How often have I seen them dressed in tatters and exposed to the wintry winds as they tottered off to some alley or some rich man's ash-heap to scratch out with naked and almost freezing fingers the little bite of unconsumed coal, so that they might have a little fire to warm their half-famished bodies while they dined upon the garbage gathered up by the children. Such were the scenes that I had often witnessed in the poverty-stricken districts of the large cities of the outer world, and with them I compared the happy scene before me. Not one deaf, dumb, blind, lame, deformed, or disfigured individual among the multitudes which often gathered upon the grounds I was now contemplating. Not one ragged, barefooted, and bareheaded urchin, nor one snowy-haired, tottering, and infirm old man or woman among them. What a contrast! A heaven was opening up before me, in comparison with the living hells that had been so indelibly impressed upon my memory. Why such a contrast between humanity here, in this great communal home, and humanity in the tenement houses, in the large cities of the outer world? There must be some cause for this extraordinary difference in the physical make-up and personal appearance of the people. Why were the people in this communal home more robust, more beautiful, and more kind and cheerful than the people of the outer world? And why had the usual decrepit appearance of age disappeared from view? Here was the evidence that a physical regeneration of the race had taken place. I did not doubt that this was the logical result of improved social and economic conditions, and I was determined to find, if possible, the scientific explanation. But here my meditations were broken in upon by the sight of an airship crossing my line of vision, in the direction of that portion of the roof used as a boat-yard. I opened the sliding doors, and looking out toward the landing, I saw the vessel alight, and a splendid-looking person step out, just as McNair opened the door upon that side, saying, "'There is Oqua!' and motioned for her to come into the reclining-room. McNair and Iola had so often spoken of this person in such eulogistic terms as a ripe scholar, an experienced educator, prominent throughout the world, that I had pictured her as aged, sedate, and probably careworn from the discharge of her onerous duties, showing the wear of years of careful study and attention to public affairs. But what was my surprise, as she came up to the observatory, to see a most beautiful woman showing no signs of age or care? I could but stand spellbound and admire her form and features which were simply perfect. 
Any attempt at description would be presumptuous, and I will not attempt it. As she came in and was introduced by McNair, I noticed that she understood our language and customs, for stepping forward and extending her hand to Captain Gonneau, she said in a most musical voice, I am indeed most happy to make your acquaintance, and offer you a most cordial welcome to our country, and a place in our esteem. Your arrival has been heralded all over the world, and it is regarded as an event that may be pregnant with the most important results to the entire human race. The Congress of Educators at Lake Minerva passed a resolution requesting that the next meeting of the world's Parliament shall be held at the Auditorium of the Transportation Pavilion at Lake Byblis, and that this shall be the occasion of giving a world's reception to the crew of the Ice King. But, Captain, how many do you have with you? Only one, said the Captain. The others are at Lake Byblis. But here's Jack Adams, the scholarly artist and scientist of the expedition, and as such I have no doubt that you and he will become fast friends. She turned to me, and placing one hand on my shoulder, grasped my extended hand with the other. She scanned me from head to foot with an expression of amazement and inquiry playing over her smiling countenance. Then with a light musical laugh she bent forward and kissed me on the forehead, saying, Yes, I am sure that we will become fast friends. The action was so sudden and unexpected that I blushed, stepped back, and stammered. I instinctively knew that her keen eye had penetrated my disguise, and the recognition tested my nerves. Yet it was so cordial that I felt that my secret was safe, and my reply was a laugh, a lifting of the eyebrows, and a closer pressure of her soft, warm palm, as I merely responded, Yes, I am quite sure. And from that moment I knew that she was indeed a friend. A chord of sympathy and affection had been touched, that enraptured, while it bound me in bonds of friendship to this grand woman, a relationship of the most enjoyable character, as well as of incalculable value, in opening up for me a life-work, as agreeable to myself as I hoped to make it profitable to others. For some time we joined in general conversation, when Okwa asked McNair if we had yet been registered and enrolled as citizens. In part, said McNair, they have been given numbers on the schedule of the school, but have not yet been called upon to select the names by which they desire to be known. In fact, I have not yet explained this matter to them. Iola has been giving them language lessons in their room, and instructions concerning such matters as they desire to understand more fully in regard to the country, its history, customs, etc., but, as they can now read and speak the language understandingly, their selection of names and registration as citizens ought not to be put off any longer. As present, their numbers only rank them as minors. We were more than a little mystified at the turn the conversation had taken, and as it related to us. Captain Gonneau asked, "'What does this mean? It seems from your remarks that we have been numbered, and that we are now to be labeled. I would be pleased to have an explanation.' We highly appreciate the interest you have taken in our welfare, and anticipate much pleasure and profit to be derived from a knowledge of your language, as it will give us access to the boundless stores of wisdom which are contained in your literature. But is it really necessary for us to be numbered and labeled? I take it for granted that it is all right, but I do not understand it. Perhaps, said McNair, this should have been explained to you sooner but I was guided by my own experience when I found myself among these people. 
There was so much to be learned, and it could not all be acquired at once. I deemed it best to give you as nearly as possible just what you asked for, and let you get somewhat acquainted with the customs of the country before asking you to take the steps necessary to become citizens of Altruria, which also makes you citizens of the inner world, entitled to all the rights of citizenship no matter where you go. In America you require a foreigner to declare his intentions to become a citizen, and then, after five years, you permit him to be sworn in as a full-fledged citizen. We have no regulations but such as apply to all alike. The child has no choice of birthplace, but it has a natural right to food, shelter, clothing, education, etc. Hence children are numbered, so we may know how many are to be provided for. When they reach maturity and graduate from school, they are requested to select the names by which they desire to be known. This entitles them to a voice in public affairs, and makes them eligible to any public trust. When I gave you a number, the right to food, clothing, and education was conferred upon you. When you select names, you will be registered as citizens, and will be entitled to a voice in public affairs, and eligible to any public trust for which you may be selected. Then, said the captain, it seems that we have no reason to be dissatisfied with either the number or the label, as the first gives us free access to wealth that we did not create, and the second confers upon us the sovereign right to be consulted as to how our benefactors should conduct their business. We seem to be the beneficiaries in all these regulations, reaping where we have not sown. What right have we to the fruits of labor of others to whom, as yet, we have been of no benefit whatever? The same right, said Okwa, that you have to live. Your right to life cannot be questioned, and you cannot live unless you have access to the fruits of the earth, which are garnered by the labor of the people. The primary object of human society is to secure to each individual member the right to live and be happy, and to this end each must be secure in the possession of the means of subsistence and the liberty to enjoy the healthy exercise of every function of mind and body. This being the primary object for which our social organism was created, our first duty is to humanity, and all of our rules and regulations have this one object in view. But does not this endanger the perpetuity of the social organism, asked the captain, by opening the door to those who would take advantage of this broad definition of rights to impose grievous burdens upon those who confer these rights? Not at all, responded Okwa. When all the people enter into an organization of society, the primary object of which is to provide the best possible conditions for each of its members, the personal interests of each will, to say nothing of the moral obligations, impel them to perpetuate such organization, by doing everything in their power to promote the best interests of all. Hence, just as soon as all have been made secure in their natural rights to life, liberty, and those equitable conditions which place happiness within the reach of all, sound policy, as well as equal liberty and even-handed justice demands that all should have an equal voice in the conduct of public affairs in which all are equally interested. It would be manifestly unjust and oppressive to ask the people to submit to regulations to which they never consented. I admit the force of your reasoning, said the captain. Same ideas expressed in different language were adopted in my own country, and have served to embellish platform utterances and sensational newspaper appeals, but in practice they have been treated as mere glittering generalities. 
Here you seem to regard them in a far different light, as something to be reduced to practice in everyday life, and with a people as well educated as yours, this seems to be easy. But with an ignorant and brutal populace, the case would be very different. Not so, said Oqua. There is more good than evil in the human soul. The populace might be made ignorant and brutal by the violation of these principles, and if so, the application of these principles in all the transactions of life would inevitably produce an intellectual and refined populace. This is no glittering generality, but a sober truth, and this is the lesson that your people must learn before they can ever reach their ideal of what they ought to be. When the leading minds among any people realize that there is absolutely but one way by which the masses of mankind can ever be elevated to higher and better conditions mentally and morally, and that way is by placing them under better conditions physically, it will be found that the whole people can be lifted up to a higher plane of being as if by magic. It is on this line that the people of this country have been moving for centuries and it is to this that we desire to call your attention. We give you a number, which signifies that because you have an existence, you are entitled to the blessings of our civilization. But now we want you to register a name as a co-worker. When you take this step, you will have given us your permission to ask your cooperation whenever it is needed. Are you willing to register and assume the duties incumbent upon citizenship? certainly said the captain you have a right to command our services and all we want is to know what is required of us then you will register said oqua this will make you one of us and equally responsible with us for the exalted trust which is committed to our hands of preserving intact the blessings of a humane civilization so if you are ready we will attend to this preliminary work at once we assented, and stepping on the elevator, passed down into the lower story and into the registry office, which was made a part of the Department of Education. For school purposes, it was of course necessary to register the children, and as all adults were supposed to be graduates of the schools, the same department kept a registry of the entire people, so that at any time the population of any community, district, or continent could be ascertained at short notice. Oqua opened an immense volume, and turning to the proper letter, said, "'You see here the name of your countryman, James McNair. Just opposite on the left is a number. Of course his introduction to our schools was that of a child, as he had everything to learn concerning the language and people of our country, while we knew nothing of his language or his country. As a pupil he was known by a number.' As a citizen, he is known by a name, and according to our customs that name must be one of his own choosing. There could be no objection to his taking the same name by which he was known in the outer world, and you can, of course, suit yourselves in the selection of names, but it must be your own signature, and when recorded it becomes permanent. All that we care for is that it shall be your own choice." "'As to that,' said the captain, "'I prefer to retain my original name. "'However, I rather like this custom "'of permitting people to select names to suit themselves. "'In the outer world the name is selected for you, "'and you are not permitted to change it "'except by application to the courts "'or the law-making power. "'But, as I have no reason to change my name, "'you may record it as Raphael Gano.' 
But let me suggest, interposed McNair, that you retain the prefix of captain, as it is familiar to your crew and also designates your relation to what I doubt not is destined to take its place in the minds of the people of the world as the only polar expedition that brought blessings to humanity. Of course, the title signifies nothing here, but it does in the outer world, which is to receive the greatest benefits from it, and there is no reason here that you should not retain it as part of your name. Then so be it. Captain Raphael Gano will give me the regulation three names of the outer world, for the edification of a people who seem to be, as a rule, contented with only one. My turn to select a name came next. An Okwa toying with her fan between her fingers, and with a smile she could not suppress, said to me, "'Well, Jack, why is it that you take no part in this discussion? You seem to have no interest in the matter of selecting names.' Is it because you deem it of no importance, or do you disapprove of our custom of requiring every person to select a name, in order to become a citizen? Oh, as for that, I replied, I approve your custom, but as yet I have not given any thought to the name I should select for myself. But, as I have always been rather indifferent in regard to names, I hardly know how to give myself a cognomen which seems to be so much more important than I have been accustomed to think it. "'Oh, then,' interposed McNair, "'there's no hurry. "'You have an unquestioned right to take all the time for reflection that you require, "'provided that you are willing to remain a minor.' "'I am not trying to evade the responsibility,' I replied. "'This matter may just as well be attended to now as at some future time.' "'Okwa, then raising her eyes with a mischievous twinkle, "'asked with a comical expression of countenance, "'Shall it be Jack Adams?' I pressed my finger on my lips, and with a side glance at Captain Gonneau, replied, No, not Jack Adams, if you please. McNair caught the silent message, but could not interpret its purport, and looking first at me, and then at Okwa, said, What kind of a side-show is this being exhibited under our very eyes, and we left in the dark? What have you against Jack Adams, that you should thus take the very first opportunity to put an end to his existence? so that he will not have even the poor tribute to his memory of an inscription on a marble slab. No mystery at all, I replied. Jack Adams is all right for a sailor, but too commonplace for this land of romance and sublimity. I intend to exercise my right to select a more euphonious title, more in harmony with the part I hope to play. And turning to Okwa, I asked, Will you please to suggest some appropriate name, something short and significant? After a moment's reflection, she said, I have a name for you, Jack, that I think will be most appropriate. I have been told that you are a student, and our people greatly desire to obtain all the knowledge that is within reach of the outer world, its geography, history, manners, and customs, and as you are inclined to be studious, we will doubtless want you as an instructor in our schools. And for that reason, I select for you the name Niqua, which signifies teacher. I was much pleased with the name, and even Captain Gonneau, who was quite a stickler for established usages, intimated that he regarded it as much more appropriate than commonplace Jack Adams. Of course, I assented, and Niqua became the name by which I am known in the inner world. I was now a citizen of Altruria, and had been assigned a position in the public service as a teacher, which gave me the opportunities I so much coveted to gather gems of wisdom for the benefit of my own country, which was grappling with great problems that had here been solved. 
I retired to my apartments to think. It had been just two months since we arrived at this great communal home, and I had recovered from the long strain to which I had been subjected for two years on the Ice King. I now discovered that it was this strain, brought on by the dangers which continually beset us, that had held me up. But now that all the dangers were past, and the future bright with hope, a flood of bitter memories swept in upon me like a mighty avalanche. For the first time in years I gave way to uncontrollable emotions, as I buried my face in the soft silk cushioned sofa on which I reclined, and wept as seldom mortals are doomed to weep. How long I had remained thus I do not know, when I felt a gentle hand tenderly stroking my head, and a voice I could not mistake said in the most soothing tones, Niqua, Niqua, child, what troubles you? Listen to me, dear. It did not take me long to discover that under the smiling exterior of Jack Adams you carried the aching heart of a stricken woman. Do not start. I am your friend. Confide in me. I know that there is some deep secret gnawing at your heart-strings, and that it relates to Captain Gannot, and of which he is entirely unconscious. And I know that there must have been some great wrong in days gone by from which you suffer. I could stand no more, and throwing both arms around Oqua's neck, and drawing her down to me as a suffering child would its affectionate, sympathetic mother, I kissed her repeatedly between my sobs as I replied, Yes, my dear Oqua, you read me aright, but the crushing wrongs of the hideous past are irreparable, and the future promises no healing balm for the wounds that have been inflicted. I must meet my fate alone. It would be wrong for me to burden you with my troubles. No, let me bear them alone, on, on, to the bitter end. I must drain the cup of misery to its dregs absolutely alone." Here I again broke down, and gave way to another flood of tears. I wept until my brain seemed a livid flame, and my heart bursting with despair, while Oqua sat silently by my side, stroking my head, until the storm of contending emotions had time to subside, when she said, "'Niqua, I am glad to find you in tears. They will give you relief as nothing else can.' I knew you needed a friend, and I have come to constitute myself that friend. Now listen to me. I knew from the first that you were a woman, and that Captain Canot did not suspect anything of the kind. I further discerned that there was a hidden cord which drew you to him, and yet for some reason you dare not reveal yourself to him. This secret is wearing your life away. You must tell me all about it, and I can, and I will help you to bear it. When we look at things philosophically, and see them on all sides just as they are, there is no wound of body, mind, or spirit that may not be healed. There is no wrong that is not too limited in its scope to affect any permanent injury. Our bounteous mother, nature, has provided a healing balm for every wound, if we will but search for it with the right spirit. I could not be mistaken as to the spirit and purposes of this noble woman, nor resist her entreaties. She had penetrated my disguise, and read my secret, and I had every reason to respect her judgment. For years I had carried my burdens alone. Under the weight of the wrongs imposed upon me, I had sought relief from the burden of grief in the exercise of an indomitable will, 
in a vain effort to force my heart to become, if need be, as cold as ice and as hard as adamant. But it could not be. I was forced to realize that there can be no philosophy which steals the heart against every bitter woe. Tis not in nature, and it cannot be. We cannot rend the heart, and not a throw of agony tell how it feels a blow. And now this agony, which I had carried so long, concealed under the smiling countenance of an assumed character, had forced a recognition. This was nature's demand for human sympathy, and the kind and loving heart of Oakwell was here to respond. Much as I had desired to keep my sorrow deep buried in my own bosom, I could not repel this noble woman, whose keen intuition had already divined my secret. I felt the need of just such sympathy as hers, and why should I spurn it from me? My soul went out to her, and I felt impelled by some irresistible impulse to clasp her to my bosom and tell her all. My heart was breaking with the silent misery that had carried for years, unshared by a single human being, and which I resolved should be carried unobserved to the grave. Again I resolved anew that I would not even share it with this noble sympathizing woman, but nature's floodgates, once opened for the outpouring of long-suppressed sorrow, closed no more to force it back upon the surcharged heart, and before I knew what I was doing, I was folded to her bosom, and weeping out the long pen-up load of grief that had been gnawing at my heart-strings. As I looked up into her face, I could see the cordial, heartfelt sympathy reflected from her beautiful countenance as she whispered, "'Go on, dear Nequa, and tell me all about it. Do not distrust a friend who is able to help you as I can. Remember what I told you, that our bounteous Mother Nature has provided a balm for every wound. This is no fanciful exaggeration, but a well-ascertained truth.' I do not distrust you, I replied, and when I am more composed I will tell you all. I have done nothing to be ashamed of, but I cannot talk now. I am too much agitated. Call this evening, and I will tell you all. So be it, said Oqua, and I will be here early this evening. Do not be discouraged, compose yourself, and be of good cheer, and all will be well. And imprinting a kiss on my forehead, she left me to my meditations, which now began to assume a more roseate hue. Some of the blackness of despair which had overwhelmed me had begun to depart, and I felt more hopeful and became more composed. End of chapter nine.